0: I don't think anything was crazier than, than Anderson coming down, right? There was, it was, it was unprecedented business event, um, in history and the, the mindset of people who thought it was going to survive. And then, you know, those who decided, look, we're going to need another plan. Um, and, and the speed with it, with which it happened, I think shocked everybody.
1: Yeah. Stan, thanks for coming on today. Uh, I've known you for, I don't even know, it's probably close to a decade at this point. Uh, and uh, you've been somebody who's impressed me quite a bit. Uh, you know, the, the more I've gotten to know you and uh, heard about, you know, your your uh, career trajectory, what you've done throughout your career, how you started EigenX. And uh, I know a lot of people that, you know, we have in common, uh, mutual friends also feel the same way. So uh, I've never actually heard uh, your entire uh career kind of in sequential order i've just heard the bits and pieces uh you know earlier in your career you were part of arthur anderson uh before the enron collapse you went on to lecg uh, which also had a a spectacular collapse and then eventually you went to start the firm that you wanted to work for eigenx which has been around for uh you just had your 10-year anniversary this year uh, you guys are, uh, you know, hitting twenty million in revenue, about a hundred employees. Uh, you know, we we my firm's worked with you guys. You guys do amazing work, and uh, you know, I'd love to just kind of hear all of the lessons learned throughout that entire uh, career trajectory.
0: Yeah, thanks, Brian. No, I think we um, we definitely uh, have become experts at uh, at reacting to whatever cards were dealt out there. Um, just in a bit of chronological order, I was actually working at. Um, GE Chemicals. Uh, being a chemical engineer, uh, went back and was uh, getting my master's at Drexel in Electrical Engineering with the thought that I was going to make new and better um, control software and and things like that in the chemical industry. Um, but as I focused more on the software side and on uh, the AI and machine learning, um, I really felt there was more of an opportunity to to take that my career in that direction. Were you guys doing um, the AI stuff back then? I was. Yeah, that was uh, that was learning systems early on. Um, it was rules based, but there was also um, a fair amount of machine learning um, on machines. You've probably never even seen uh, some Spark <laughs> stations and uh, a lot of Unix before. There was really a, a Linux world out there. Um, but in that vein of technology, then we ended up doing um, uh, some of the early uh, digital uh, catalogs online for companies that had large SKU sets and needed to do complex searches and things like that. So. When you were managing bandwidth and, uh, and picture download speeds, because uh, people were doing it on a dial-up or a, a load-speed connection, you really sort of had to um, have a different level of thought process in your design and coding. Um, because I was doing that, I happened to be uh, looking for my next opportunity to focus more on the on the tech side, um, and that's when I met uh, Joe Lanzasera and the and the team at uh, at Arthur Anderson. Who was trying to build um, uh, an e-commerce, a technology team around um, some of the new internet tools because they had clients that were asking for the service and they didn't really have time to build it internally? So it was a little unusual for them to actually um, make a senior hire to come in and um, and lead a team. So I came in as a as a senior manager at Arthur Anderson um, in um, see that was.
1: That was the business services side, the business
0: consulting. It wasn't the accounting side of the business. Um, so I got there just ahead of uh, of the divorce. So Accenture was still in our building at the time. It was still one firm, um, Arthur Anderson, and at the time, An- Anderson Consulting. Um, but that split was going on just after I joined. Uh, they sort of made it final. So uh, uh, Arthur Anderson Business Consulting stayed with the account accounting and tax team and Accenture went off uh, at the time of the split. um, Each firm was about 85,000 employees and about eight and a half billion dollars in revenue. So it was a pretty equal split on who went in which direction, Um, but Accenture took a lot of the tech. And the idea was that Anderson's business consulting team would focus more on small enterprise. So let's say, you know, a billion dollars and under, but of course, just like has happened throughout history with all the firms rebuilding their practice, Soon as Accenture was gone, we were focused on the big firms again and, and chasing uh bigger companies.
1: So why why did they split? I think the split happened before the whole Enron debacle, right?
0: It, it was. It was actually really fortuitous for Andrew, for Accenture because they had time to rebrand and separate yeah. um, before any of the Good real timing. disaster hit the fan. Um <laughs> on the accounting side. So it was it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, we always uh sort of joked, you know, it was it was millionaire partners fighting over how to split up $17 billion. Um, Anderson had funded the growth of Accenture for many years. And then once it was really profitable, now it was um, asymmetrical distributions in the other direction. And so it was, um, it was uh, mostly amicable. And I think the firms at that size, um, you know, you see that happen over and over again now. But at the time, it was the first... Um, the first of the big splits were consulting left. Um, but it created great opportunities for those of us that were the business consulting side. Um, so we were servicing um, mostly larger clients, even at that time. Um, and it was amazing the speed at which uh, the collapse came upon us. Um, I was at the partner meeting in see, it August of 2001. And... They were still mentioning Enron as one of the largest clients, and weren't talking about problems that had been encountered or or anything along those lines. And you know, by February of the following year, most of us were gone. And by May, they had ceased operations. So
1: when uh, when did the uh, kind of the news cycle start on Enron? Do you recall the
0: date on uh, that? Yeah, I can remember sitting at uh, at a ski resort in Vermont watching Saturday Night Live. And the Anderson logo came up on the newscast part of Saturday Night Live um, as a joke. And I'm like, oh man, we are in so much trouble. Um, we're the we're the root of a comedy skit here. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be a problem. Um here, so 20 years
1: later, it's happening with FTX all over again.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the again, I would say even in those days, without that was even almost ahead of the 24 hour news cycle, um, you know, the speed of the collapse and it was um pretty uh pretty precipitous and so you know we went from hey we're gonna work this out we're gonna um you know we're gonna maybe take a fine we're gonna have to you know re rework our quality controls things like that to uh, we're gonna need a lifeboat and uh, and again I remember watching um joe barradino who was the ceo at the time of anderson uh testifying before congress and i, I always joked at a time when uh we needed winston churchill we had Neville chamberlain <laughs> um, it, it just really didn't, um, didn't look good. You could tell Congress was all fired up about the, uh, uh, the situation. Again, all the firms had problems out there. Um, Anderson just had the unfortunate, um, the situation of being first and, and certainly being the poster child. Now, of course, at the end of this whole story and a few years later, um, you know, everything was taken back in, you know, the, um, uh, there were no charges ever filed, and and basically Anderson got it, Hey, sorry, we over prosecuted in this story. Um, you guys are are fine, but the firm had been gone for five years by the time all of those things got worked out. So there really wasn't um, any you know real wrongdoing. It just the optics were terrible. Um, so the now- um, the, uh, the
1: they got their accounting license taken away, but then it got
0: restored five years later. Um, I don't think he'd ever even bothered to do that. The firm was so long gone. Okay. Um, but you know, the um the prosecution was around uh, the destruction documents, and that was all resolved, dropped, cleared, et cetera. Um, you know, the other amazing lesson was there were only a handful of people involved um, that actually were making these decisions in a in a Houston office that I wasn't even aware of. Um, you know, and, and David Duncan was the partner on the on the account at the time. Um But, um, you know, being in Philadelphia in the consulting practice, you know, we were pretty far removed from uh, from the fires burning in in Texas or the shredders running in Texas, whatever you want (laughs) to you want to call it. Um, So, again, we pretty quickly turned around and said, well, look, we've got, um, you know, in our office, in the consulting side, um, you know, a couple of hundred people. They're going to want to work together if at all possible. the irony of the whole story is that, um, the accounting folks found a new home at KPMG almost immediately and, and the tax guys moved on to another firm and the consulting group, which really hadn't been involved at all, uh, were the ones left to kind of figure out our own story. Um, the a- actual deal was for bearing point, uh, which, you know, didn't last too long after that. And most of the people that went didn't last too long. Um, so Joe and myself and, um, uh, two other partners decided, "Hey, we're going to take our teams as much as we can and uh, try to join another firm together." Um, so we we met with a ton of firms, and um, you know the clock was ticking. Did you it still was, have the
1: clients at that point, or was it just the talent that you had to find a home for?
0: You know, it was mixed. Right, um, clients were pretty quick to cancel contracts, but we still had relationships. Um, you know, there wasn't much work we could take with us because it was going to be entangled in. In Anderson's legal battles, um, so it was mostly those client relationships and the people that we could take somewhere. Yeah. So you know we needed we needed funding to get it started. We debated doing it on our own, right? Um, at that point, trying to just gather private equity and and uh, build a new firm, and that's where you know firms that you might know today, like um, West Monroe Partners um, and, and some of the other firms that came out of there, ended up doing fantastic. But they already had the private equity relationships, the funding. They were able to line up really quickly, and um, North Highlands. There were, gosh, there were probably twenty firms that formed um, from the, you know, from the um, the forest fire, uh, just one step ahead of uh, of everything having to shut down. Um, so we decided, uh, after a, a bit of a search, uh, to join uh, Smart Consulting, form the Smart Consulting Group. Um, with uh, an accounting and tax firm here in the Mainline, uh, the Jim Smart had started about 20 years earlier. Um, so they were they were not much bigger than uh, than we are now. And you know, we asked them to absorb 60 people and four partners, um, and make it happen. Right, and we'll we'll get this thing off the ground and get it rolling. So um, Jim Smart, being quite the entrepreneur, saw an opportunity that doesn't come along every day. Um, you know, and, and brought us in, let us, um, let us get ourselves uh, up and running. Um, we focused on many of the same things we had been doing, many of the same clients, um, and through some acquisitions, uh, mostly on the accounting side, uh, plus the momentum we were building, uh, on the consulting side, uh, we joined in 2002, uh, to really, um, launch a consulting practice for them. How big were they at uh, the time? What's that? How big was Smart at the time? Um, also, about I think they were about 100 people, about 20 million. Okay, uh, when we joined them at that point, and we brought in another 50 or 60, something along those lines. Um, but uh, we caught the uh, you know the upswing in the economy for sure from 2002 uh, to 2007. Um
1: that's a big risk though. I mean, to for Jim to take on uh adding, you know, basically increasing your headcount 50% without having the revenue and the contracts to back that up. Right, right. That's a um
0: it's a bold move. Um, but five years later we were doing about a hundred million in revenue. Um, so between the acquisitions and the growth curve, um, the larger clients that we were chasing, um it was, um, you know, it was a rapid growth for everybody. So it it was a little bit of a slow start, right? It was um, integration issues, um, backlog issues, clients coming in and getting new contracts in place, um, acclimating our people. And, you know, we were only able to bring about 60 people, even though the team had been 150, 160 people. So, you know, uh, a large, when you have 85,000, of your uh, friends and colleagues thrown into the marketplace, you end up knowing um, people like clients and other firms, uh, et cetera. so it it really created an interesting network that uh, you know we still refer to as alumni, right? And we'll still um, you know there's still an alumni association. there's a a LinkedIn section for Anderson alum, et cetera. And you know the um the last of the groups, uh, the youngest of the folks who would have joined in two thousand and one. Um, a lot of them are CFOs and CIOs places. Now we'll see promotion announcements. Um, but the growth at Anderson, we, we, I'm sorry, the growth of smart, we continue to get, um, uh, interested in people having us join them. And you know, there's always mergers. Uh, there's always, um, acquisitions and smart. had turned down a number of those things as we were growing. Um, but a private equity deal came along and, um, in the summer of 2008, coming into the spring, going into the summer, um, we had rapid growth rates. Um, the private equity deal came through that was um, just compelling, and the idea was build this platform more rapidly, acquire other firms, and and go from being at the time about 100 million right to to be more like a 300 million dollar firm. Uh, so the private equity private equity group bought out. Um, the majority of of our equity uh, from the partners at SMART. Um, And then
1: before it became LECG or was that? uh, So the first
0: acquisition they did was LECG. Okay. Right. And it was a a SMART
1: LECG or what was the platform called? of that? It
0: it was going to be called uh, SMART, but then they decided to use the LECG brand um, when they sort of parted ways with Jim. He and the private equity guys disagreed on direction and they decided to buy LECG and, um, and use that as the platform wasn't a great combination. They were the legal expert consulting group. Um, so a very different luminary model, one-off experts in uh, uh, expert witness and, and, and similar practices that didn't really align well with the accounting tax and consulting that SMART was doing. Um, but of course you'll recognize those dates Coming into 2008, now we see an absolute economic meltdown. Um, just as we're supposed to be ramping to the next level, um, as you can imagine, the private equity team was not excited for us to um, start missing targets, to start um, missing covenants on our our loan uh, and, and financing plans. So it went from uh, being a really rapidly growing firm. Um, to, hey, this is this may not hold together, and so yet again we found ourselves interestingly sitting in the London office, um, realizing that um, this probably isn't going to last, and the private equity guys are going to sell off the pieces, um, and we had some um, insight into what they were looking to sell us to. Um, we had a chance to meet with some of the other firms, did all day meetings, um, but man, this was speed dating. You know, we had two weeks. To close a deal on as much of the um, audit tax and consulting practice as we could, not necessarily together.
1: So, I've heard Um, heard stories about LECG where uh, there was at some point where kind of like the partners disbanded and took a lot of the clients and took a lot of the top talent along with them. Uh, Are we at this point in the story or did that already
0: happen? um, You know, once once LECG was acquired, and I'm not quite familiar with that side of the, the story, but um, they were more of a assembly of independent um, experts than they were a firm tied together with partner agreements, non-competes, non-solicits, right? So um, they weren't quite the um, single entity that maybe um, the the team thought when they were doing the acquisition. Yeah, that right? was what so, I heard. It.
1: They, didn't, they didn't have those non-competes in place. Everyone just said, OK, we're going to go. Take our business and build our own
0: firm. Some some did, some didn't. Um, but uh, it was really the economic headwinds that we ran into that were the problem, right? And um, as we got nearer and nearer to the end of our um, financing, uh, that's when we had to find a, a home in that two-week window. Um, so I, I um, Joe and I were in London. We took the Red Eye uh, back to Newark Airport, uh, got in the car, drove to Philadelphia Airport, Um, And met with the folks from Grant Thornton to go through a a kind of all day meeting to see if they could make this work. Right. And so at the end of the day, Grant Thornton acquired um, all of the tax practice, which they were very excited about. Um, The accounting practice, which was smaller, but again, a good fit for Grant Thornton. And consulting was was somewhat the add on that aligned in some places, didn't align in others. and. That whole deal got done in a, an amazing amount of speed. I mean, so to their credit, uh, Grant Thornton worked through that in a really rapid pace. But now we had to do client transition, um, contract uh, movement, uh, people movement. Did people want to come? Nobody had to. Um, so, you know, an acquisition of a people-based business um, can be a little bit um, less structured if you were acquiring our assets and our uh, inventory and things like that, right? So we really had to um, circle the team and say, "Hey, look! Amazingly, for the second time in our career, um, we're going to have to make a rapid change, and this new firm is going to give us a landing spot um, and a chance to to rebuild what we had just a few months ago."
1: Um, and what what percentage of those people that you know went from uh, LECG to Uh, grant thornton were the original crew from anderson
0: um actually a pretty fair percentage we had lost a few people along the way um but by that point we'd hired a lot of new folks um uh remember none of the audit and tax people from anderson went to smart it was only the consulting team um but um when we throughout all this time we had still had our core leadership team together and that's uh most of us were still there, uh, making it through to the, to the Grant Thornton side. Um,
1: it's a cool story though. I love that, uh, people, uh, kind of banded together, built this, uh, you know, this kind of like bonds as a consulting team and just through so many, you know, mergers, acquisitions, you know, firm collapses, you know, you guys that, just stayed together all these, all these years through, through your careers.
0: Yeah. Well, that sort of led to, um, you know, after we'd been at the the big firm again, we really missed the culture that we had had in Anderson, where we felt like, um, you know, everybody was their own entrepreneur, that the the, um, the team cohesion was really strong. Um, and we saw an opportunity in the market that we felt wasn't being addressed, that the, um, the cloud-based solutions were moving to the big enterprise pretty rapidly. Um, uh, so Salesforce, uh, it wasn't Tableau yet that we were working with. Um, Workday was, of course, coming on strong. suite was coming on strong. Uh, but the many, even a mid sized enterprise, the teams aren't as big. This isn't a 200 person, five year SAP implementation. You know, these are six month, you know, 10 person implementations. And so that was really the market that we saw ourselves chasing. And the reason we decided to start over and start IGNX. Um, Joe Lanzara and I decided that um, that opportunity was too good to pass on um, and that a, a real technology-focused practice um, with the idea of of bringing our big system experience to these sort of newer up-and-coming technologies. Salesforce had been around for a while at that point, but they were really breaking into the big companies uh, at about that time timeframe. Um, so we knew originally that's what our plan was going to be. Um, when we were wrapping up at grant thornton um we still had non-competes there non-solicits so we were going to start over without um the people for at least a year and you know we could had to leave any clients that were active behind at the same time uh so that's when we we decided we were going to um start eigenx to focus on this opportunity um so it took about four months off decided to chill clear my head a little bit <laughs> um, what did you do in that time uh, I took my daughters to Europe for about three weeks, um, and just sort of uh, did some history tours and uh, uh, relaxed for a bit. It was nice to have uh, a vacation. I didn't have an email account, um, no phone calls. My cell phone was my personal phone, um, You're so it was a nice foreign language to me right now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, so that's what, that's what I told my daughters at the time. I'm like, man, I got no meetings, I got no conference calls. Uh, I don't need to check my email. Um, you know, let's just pack it up. Where do you wanna go? And we put together an itinerary and got to see uh got to see a lot of um sort of Central Europe. Uh we went to Germany, uh, uh Czech Republic, Germany again, um and, and made a nice tour of it. Um It's really cool. So we're thinking about repeating that. That was <laughs> that was ten years ago, so we're we're about ready to do it again. Um but as we were starting up, you know, one of the things that um I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs don't realize is how much cash you're going to need. So if, um, you know, if if I sign a client in January, I'll send out my first bill February 1st. Odds are the client's going to pay that in 60 or 90 days, but I'm making payroll real time. So by the time I see that check for January, I might need to make eight payrolls um, without getting the influx of cash. And so the faster you grow, the greater you consume cash ahead of receipts. Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty so we quick. grew
1: 80. Uh, my, my company, Curate Tech, grew 80 percent this year, almost 90, wow. actually, in, in the wow. 80s. Uh, we have that exact problem, uh, especially now that we're landing bigger accounts. It's like net 60, some are net 90. You know, it right. takes like a month to get through their legal team and procurement process. And, you know, they lose, you know, they, they, they have. Having to lose documents or whatever. And <laughs>
0: oh yeah, no, we've got some um some great stories from from early on. I was in uh, in Austin, Texas at a uh Salesforce event. And um our payroll provider sends me a note. Um, hey, payroll runs, you know, in two days, you need to fund the payroll. And one of our largest clients just missed a payment. So I'm calling the client. Um, hey, you guys owe us you a lot of money here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we do another check run in two weeks. We'll get you on that one. But in the meantime, <laughs> I've got to make payroll. Um, and, and the payroll provider is like, say, we need you to wire us $200,000 by tomorrow, if that's okay. Um, so I'm running around trying to find a live Schwab office in Austin, Texas, uh, because I had to sign for the wire to come through. So, so you had to pull out of your personal account. Oh, yeah. I had to pull it out of my personal account. And I was uh,
1: going to ask how, so, I mean, obviously that's, that's one way, <laughs> but uh, how, how do you, how did you manage growth when you guys, uh, and we're kind of jumping ahead to eigenex, but how, right. how did you uh, manage growth through those like high growth periods when, you know, the company is just consuming a lot of cash?
0: So originally um, we met with some other um, Anderson folks that we do in DC um, really just to get some advice and, and, I went down and had lunch with uh, with my friend, JP Foley, who was another Anderson partner. Um, they had sold their earlier uh, consulting company and had started a, a new business called Dominion Business Consulting. focused pretty much on federal. Um, and when I met with them, they were like, well, how about if we help you with the funding and we'll manage your uh, payroll and receivables for you uh, while you're growing, and then you can grow the commercial practice and we'll grow the federal practice.
1: So when they so, handle the payroll and receivables, they're just basically kind of factoring for you at that point. Exactly. And
0: uh... exactly. So um, they took equity in, in exchange for that. Uh, but about two years into this uh, deal, they were growing really rapidly in federal, and we're probably going to do another deal, be bought by somebody, and decided that a commercial practice in Philadelphia wasn't really aligned. And so at that point, um, I bought out their equity. And...
1: How much? What percentage did they have? So they had 50%. 50%. Um, how much were they floating? Like how much revenue were they floating
0: for you guys at that period? At that time, it wasn't a lot. I think I think we were in maybe 300,000. Um, okay. uh, but, uh, you know, receivables kept growing as we were getting bigger. Um, but it was a little bit a mix of a strategic decision and a cash flow decision. Um, and, you know, we made them a pretty reasonable offer. We were all friends. and. Um, that's when Stacy Barry and Rita Desai uh, bought in, in as equity partners at at uh, to help help me fund that buyout um, uh, from the guys in Dominion. So, cool. a little bit of a complicated story um, in a big circle of offense. Um, just this past year, J.P. Foley joined IganX, um to launch our federal practice in D.C. That's one of the Dominion so, guys. He's one of the, he is, was the, the Dominion guy. Oh, ah, okay. So, so he sold his um, practice so and then came and, came and joined you. He did. Uh, nice. Many years later, but it's, uh, it's great to have, again, yet another uh, Anderson alumni back uh, helping us grow.
1: It's funny how uh, I see this over and over again. And, you know, you've been in business, you know, obviously much longer than me. But uh, the longer I do it, the more I see things come full circle. Years later, like something happens, you meet somebody, and then you know, five, 10 years later it comes full
0: circle in just some unexpected way. Well, it was interesting that, you know, when we left um, Grant Thornton because of our non-solicit, we couldn't bring any of our people. And so many of those folks ended up going on to other consulting firms or industry or whatever. And then over time, um, you know, I get a phone call. Hey, I'm not happy here. Do you guys have a spot for me? Yeah, man. Where, you know, where do you want the the offer letter sent? And so we've kind of reacquired um, much of our team that goes back to um, Anderson, that goes back to Smart, um, as well as some really brilliant folks that we've picked up um, along the way that we've met in other places. So it's, um, I said, it's a little fuzzy to me when I walk out here sometimes. Okay, wait, that person wasn't Smart, but they weren't at Anderson with us. Uh, this person was Never at Smart. <laughs> we met them along the way. Um, so uh, Rena Desai had been at Smart, but she didn't work with me. She worked in another group. Um Stacey Barry had been at IBM, and I never worked with her uh, prior to her joining us. Uh, she was the first employee at IBM.
1: You need to build one of those walls where you have all the headshots and like yarn connecting all the pins on people's headshots. and yeah, there's
0: a there's a weird e r diagram that goes in there <laughs> somewhere and And many of our folks, too will be. Hey, we hired this person, um, and they would say, "Well, you know, the brightest person I worked with at my other company was, you know, this person. You should interview them too." So we have a lot of people who went to college together, um, who were referred in um, because we do we do have a good employee referral program as well. But also, you know, folks remember who the the bright people were that they worked with.
1: Yeah, cool. Uh, So, what was uh, what was like uh, the most crazy time? of your career? Was it building EigenX in the early days? Was it one of these kind of like rapid transition stories that you talked about earlier? Or what was the craziest time?
0: Look, I don't think anything was crazier than, than Anderson coming down. Right. There was, it was, it was unprecedented business event um, in history. And the, the mindset of people who thought it was going to survive. And then, you know, those who decided, look, we're going to need another plan. Um, and and the speed with it, with which it happened, I think shocked everybody, um, to have it again, not exactly recur because, uh, the end of smart was a totally different situation. It was the, the economics and the, and the financing behind it. That was, um, more of the problem again, rolling into the housing market collapse. And, um, at the time at smart near the end, you know, our two biggest clients were AIG and Royal bank of Scotland right to two entities that were sort of front and center um in the um in the mortgage uh crisis and collapse mm-hmm. so it was interesting times
1: yeah yeah so uh did you get a lot of reporters hitting you up to
0: uh do stories or anything back then uh, Time period and, you know we were a little bit under the radar uh certainly at anderson we were everybody was sort of staying off the radar um no linkedin back then i guess yeah much less um <laughs> But no, in general, I think um, you know these business events, and even now, when I um, if I speak somewhere, if they're not in, in accounting, they may not have heard of the Anderson collapse or know that there was another firm of that size. Um, in addition to the you know PwCs and uh, and, and KPMGs, EYs um, of the world, right? They they just know the big four they don't remember that there was, there was big five and Anderson was the biggest, uh, at that time. Now, I think, I think Accenture now, 20 years later is more than 600,000 employees. Um, so the, the, the paths really went in different directions, obviously from, from that point.
1: You ever seen that documentary, the smartest guys in the room?
0: Yeah. You know, I read that book and, um, you know, the, um, uh, the author obviously had some, pretty specific views, and Anderson doesn't come up as much. Obviously, we, we weren't as concerned about what was going on at Enron as we were, uh, what was going to happen to us. And we sort of got caught in the downward drag uh, more than anything. Um, you know, it's not portrayed too much there, uh, what actually happened on, on the Anderson. I mentioned a couple of times, um, but they really focused more on, on Ken Lay and the and the guys at the middle of, uh, of, of the Enron collapse.
1: So uh, FTX is doing the same thing right now. Uh, I'm sure you've been following that story. And uh, the guy who is appointed the, C- the interim CEO or whatever to try to clean up uh, FTX, uh, he was the guy who did the Enron turnaround or whatever, tried to salvage assets or whatever at the time. And uh, he he came out and made a statement, I guess, a week or two ago, uh, never in my career have I seen such... Lack of corporate controls and just blatant fraud. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. He said he doesn't trust a single number he's seen in their financial statements. So it's it's that's going to be ugly too.
1: I was asking you about the uh, reporter thing because I've been reaching out to a bunch of ex- FTX people trying oh, to really? get one of them on on the podcast here. <laughs> that, that'd be interesting, and uh, they seem pretty reluctant.
0: <laughs> yeah, I doubt if anybody wants to talk while while pending litigation. Uh, probably don't want to have anything on record as uh yeah the that could be used against them at court. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm not going for the C level. I'm going more for like the middle level, hoping someone has an axe to grind or something. But uh yeah, I haven't been able to get anybody on yet.
0: Yeah, I think you'd you'd probably be surprised. Most of them probably would say, hey, I worked for a big company that was growing rapidly and um, uh, you know, I just had a corporate job where I was doing my thing day to day. Yeah, and they probably had no awareness of of what was going on at those higher levels. Uh, but yeah, it's it's going to be a debacle of somewhat epic proportions.
1: Yeah, no doubt there. Uh, so I, I was really interested to hear about your um, the cash flow stuff we were talking about earlier because uh, that's you know kind of podcast episode aside, that stuff I'm, you know, current, as I mentioned, we're growing fast. And uh, just curious how you guys, uh, coming back to that, how you guys overcame that, you know, did you leverage line of credit? Uh, you know, how did you kind of get through those, those high growth periods of EigenX?
0: Um, I mean, obviously, we started um, funding it on our own. Um, we were then able to get some bank financing. But if you're familiar, the 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 SBA loan program has a cap of, I it Goes up every year, but I think it's around three hundred fifty thousand so dollars. It's three.
1: Um, yeah, we did that. It's three hundred fifty unsecured, yeah. and it's up to five million if you secure it.
0: Um, but I mean, it, if you're going to secure the loan, you might as well just take out a mortgage, right? I mean, yeah. There's, that was one of the things I just refused to do um, to secure any of the loans with real estate. So um, you know, you don't wanna, you don't wanna mix too many of your assets here. You know. Um, yeah. So we we operated under that plus you know, my own financing above that uh, for a number of years. But again, as we started rapidly growing, um, we were able to start working with um, uh, Meridian Bank. And Meridian is uh, much more reasonable in their requirements around um, our line of credit. So now we have um, an adequate line of credit to support our growth um, really to the next level. And that's, it's secured, but it's really our receivables. That are uh, you know are our assets here.
1: How, how much do they? Uh, is it like eighty percent of receivables, or how much do they?
0: That's uh, a pretty typical number. So that's that's what um, I think. Banks that understand the business will usually do eighty percent of outstanding current receivables.
1: But Meridian not, goes above that, though.
0: What's that? Meridian goes above the eighty percent of receivables. Uh, no, they go to eighty percent. That's the okay. same deal we have yeah. with them uh, again, which is pretty typical. I think the um, the ability to understand our business and understand that our clients are mostly Fortune 500 companies and large universities; those receivables are getting paid. Um, you know, our bad debt is almost uh, de minimis That you know, if we send a proper invoice, we do get paid. It just might be in ninety days.
1: Yep. Yeah. Totally.
0: Totally get that. And so having a real commercial line of credit that supports. This growth just takes the pressure off of the partners here and having to fund. Um, you know, if we win a big deal and we have to hire five or six people, again, we have to fund that that growth payroll until we can get to that next level um, and start collecting money on the on the additional work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so,
0: what's uh,
1: what's the future of EigenX? Where are you guys? Uh, <laughs> where are you guys going? I know you started the uh, federal services. Uh, right. office down in DC, uh, but where, where do you guys want to take it?
0: Um, you know, I think right now we're, um, we're pretty happy with with our lanes and there's a lot of growth to be had. So our lanes are CRM, which is really Salesforce. Um, and the Salesforce ecosystem has a lot of room for growth for us, right? New products that they're acquiring, uh, new verticals that they're focused on. And so we see a lot of growth in that space as well. Um, we've done really well in, in higher ed, mostly with large universities, uh, manufacturing is a big vertical for us. And then life sciences is our biggest vertical out there with a smattering of, of financial services and banks, uh, mixed in the, the other lane, um, our solution set is analytics, which for us is pretty heavily Tableau, um, but also, uh, Snowflake, um, Alteryx, uh, we're doing a lot now with Databricks and DataRobot and seeing a lot of growth in the uh, machine learning and AI side of the uh, of the analytics skill set. I love AI right now. I've been playing around with
1: OpenAI. And, yes. uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about in the future, you know, building other companies. And for sure, AI is what I'm most excited about, uh, building something on like GPT-3 or GPT-4. Uh, Codex is in beta. I just got access to Codex. And okay. uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but that's like mm-hmm. machines building machines. You can literally feed, uh, you know, English instructions to the API, and it will write code for you. But that's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah. Right now, it's function by function, so you you know you have to kind of take it like 50, 100, 200 lines of code at a time, and still kind of structure your application. And it's not always written the best, but uh, I think in like ten or fifteen years, you'll be able to say, you know, hey, build me a CRM. I'm an HVAC company that has. 300 trucks in the Northeast and uh, you know, here's all of our purchase orders and invoices, just go consume all this data and then build yeah. me a CRM.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's where we're seeing things in the data side, um, starting to take it on more and more frequently, right? On how you're ingesting the data in the first place and having some of the, um, the machine learning tools um, make decisions in the, in the data ingestion process, which is pretty interesting. Um,
1: so you guys are using it mostly in analytics right now, mostly in the
0: analytics side. Yeah. Okay, but again, Salesforce is trying to bake that into more and more of their products, and um, that whole ecosystem around um, marketing cloud and and some of the other tools that are out there um, certainly has a lot of opportunity for for the uh, the AI stuff. Um, our third is you know, we call it um, agile, so we are building products using agile. Uh, mostly .NET, um, React on the front end. So we, we are building some commercial software, um, but we also coach in Agile, train in and Agile, and, and help other companies improve their processes through that. And that includes setting up PMOs and requirements management and and just general consulting that most tech consulting firms do. Uh, the, um, the fourth lane that we always thought was going to be out there would be something like a NetSuite or a Workday. Um, but we've never actually gotten to that. Uh, we've seen enough growth than what we already have that we we just haven't tried to make that uh, that jump into an entirely new practice area. So we see ourselves being able to double in size without adding any new solution sets.
1: I think um, it's smart. I mean, if you spread yourself too thin, if you have too many lanes, then you know it's you know how much manpower can you dedicate to each thing if you've got you know too many things that you do, and that's. That's the question I think a lot of firms have to think about, Uh, you know, you go to some I've seen, you know, in our space in the web dev and software dev space, you know, you see some firms and you go to their homepage and you see like 50 different framework logos like Rails and .NET and React and Vue and Laravel and Java, you know, Java Spring and Node.js. And then, you know, you go to their LinkedIn page and it's like nine employees and it's like, (laughs) it's like, all right, you know, who's doing what here? (laughs) Well, for us, one of the big
0: uh, drivers of that is um, just training and hiring, right? So we're hiring into those teams, um, mostly people with little or no experience, and we're training them up. And that takes a while. Um, so we have a mix of bringing experts in, but then having those experts be able to coach and mentor people right off campus, people with non-traditional nontraditional uh, careers uh, that are joining us. And there's a combination of skills required, right? The BA, the business side, um, understanding the data, having the uh, vision to craft good dashboards. And then you need the hardcore data scientists to go in and make this stuff actually happen. And so we have uh, a number of layers and we're always developing people internally and trying to bring them up that path. It gets harder and harder to do if you have too many solution offerings. Um, It's also, Challenging to build those curriculums because, in addition to the great training that we get from Salesforce and the Trailheads, we obviously have our own accelerators, our own training programs uh, that we use within the tool sets to make sure that folks learn how we want to deliver those solutions.
1: How much do you guys uh, do? Uh, you know, junior hires out of college versus hiring people that are mid-level or senior, or you know, uh, more you know, like director, VP level.
0: So. Out of the gate, the strategy was I needed to hire the the leaders first. And it's hard to make money with uh, nothing but senior managers on your team. But we knew going in that we we had to have the folks that could lead these engagements, lead these teams, and most importantly, help us recruit. So we definitely started with our senior team first. Um, then we built out more on the delivery side, let's say manager. And, and and
1: that's where Dominion came
0: in, was they were able to kind of help fund that initial... They were. They were. Yeah. And, um you know, we were able to continue to build on that. Um, you know, the first three leaders I hired are still here, helping run teams and, and and grow the firm. They're all three, um, you know, equity partners, owners in the company now. Um, but now, really only in the last two or three years, as we got north of 70 people, we feel like we could bring somebody in with, you know, good book learning, uh, right off campus, uh, some good experience. Uh, and run them through our training program. And so we've we've been able to do that um, pretty effectively. Uh, We find it's best to bring in groups of four or five or six because they do work together and get to learn things together. Um, They've got some cohesion between them so they can help each other if they're struggling to learn something. But the most important piece is having them tied closely to a tech leader um, that can help them solve the problems as they go. Yeah. Um, and we that's our next layer of growth, that that's probably going to be from, um, you know, a shift to more junior and mid-level resources and promoting our current uh, leaders into more senior roles to help grow to that next level.
1: I think you, I mean, we've struggled with that. Uh, we've never really hired junior people. We might be getting to the size where we're, we're ready to, but I, I feel like you have to be probably a hundred or 200 person team in order to really absorb, you know, even small cohorts of of junior people out of college and adequately train them and nurture them, you know, kind of groom them on their career.
0: And you have to have projects that are big enough um, that they can shadow on and learn something valuable. Um, you know, most clients aren't that interested in paying for people that have no experience, so we have to get them the experience usually on our nickel yeah. um, while they shadow, learn, and train, so that they can then start bringing value to clients on on projects and you know become a, a a, you know, a billable resource. And that takes time. And and that's an investment that we're making now uh, going into into 23 with having that higher class from last year be ready to come in and, and, and be pretty valuable members of our teams.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh- One last segment uh, to touch on. And then if there's anything you want to touch on. uh, So on the sales side, uh, what percentage of your deal flow comes from your kind of like the Anderson alum network or the smart alum network versus uh, good old fashioned outreach, you know, marketing, uh, you know, kind of grinding the pavement.
0: Uh, Well, interestingly enough, um, you know, a lot of our Anderson network are uh, starting to retire and play golf and, uh, (laughs) <laughs> In South Carolina, right? So a, a lot of the folks that we had known, that were more senior to us, are sort of, you know, becoming advisors and board members and things like that. So there's still some of that out there. Um, I would say that's a that's a onesie twosie type of thing. Um, but was it more mix, when
1: you first started,
0: though, was it, was it more when we just? first started because those folks were maybe still being the CEOs or CIOs somewhere. Um, now it tends to be more the folks we knew at Smart and other places. Um, that have gone on to build careers and they know us um, and know some of our people. So they may um, request individual team members that they know because they worked with them in the past. Um, But I would say that probably represents at this point, um, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 percent of our net new clients. Um, We also have delivered well for, um, you know, a CIO somewhere. And he or she takes a job at a new company, and then they decide they need some of that same help referrals. Uh, so I would say the network of um, of happy customers moving around, combined with the referrals within certain verticals, where you know a CIO will call uh, a colleague at another um, uh, university and say, "Hey, we're trying to do Salesforce at higher ed. You know, who would you use?" And we're usually on that short list uh, of names that we be given out.
1: So it's more customer so, referrals versus like platform uh, partner referrals like Salesforce themselves or?
0: It, it varies, um, but it's more it's more client referrals. Um, many of our clients in Salesforce have Salesforce when we met them and are looking to enhance the implementation that they did a few years ago. Um, we do do net new deals. We are out to competing with them and we, we do work with the Salesforce uh, field team on opportunities like that, um, and the same with Tableau. Again, representing a you know a, a portion of our uh, inbound sales, uh, but it's still that network um, and referrals, and then obviously the partners uh, being out there meeting folks every day, um, being known in the Philadelphia market. But our clients are are national and even international. Um, we've done uh, done work in the EU. Um, we have a client now in Australia. Uh, we've done some work in Singapore, so uh, we do do work globally, but that's usually a client bringing us to there, um outside the U.S. Um, entities to work with them. But from a from a U.S. standpoint, um, we have universities we work with from coast to coast. Uh, we now have two people in uh, San Francisco servicing clients on the West Coast and and helping with some of our larger university clients. Um. And we can see that to continue to grow. Uh, to be honest, we've been hesitant to have employees that weren't somewhat proximate to this office. Um, and we've become more flexible on that uh, with some folks in um, in Florida, some folks were in Indiana, uh, we've got some folks in California. So we, we now have some smaller percentage of uh, totally remote workers, but all US-based. Um, and we we feel like that onshore model is a requirement for the type of work we do.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's interesting. So it sounds like a lot of it's referrals and networking. Uh, for us, it used to be almost you know it was heavily uh, organic. So like you know search and paid marketing strategies, kind of like inbound marketing strategies, Google mm-hmm. organic search, paid search, uh, stuff like that, and then mostly so it was maybe half that and half referrals and and word of mouth. Uh, We've built over the last three or four years, uh, an outbounding strategy. So I have a SDR team and we're doing outbounding to our ideal customer profiles. And that has become 50% of our net new Wow! and then we've got about uh, 30%, roughly, maybe 35% is referrals, either from existing customers or partners. Uh, And then the remainder is probably back to that, like marketing inbounds, you know, kind of organic uh, paid strategy. Uh, But it really, when we took off growth in 2021, uh, that was as a result of the outbound uh, strategy work we were doing in 2019 and 2020. And uh, it's interesting. uh, uh, I think as, as companies grow, it's, you know, your deals come from different places, especially as you go through different. Uh, kind of uh, layers of of uh, customers. You know, you start out with smaller customers and you move, you know, into bigger customers and eventually even, you know, large enterprises like where you guys focus. And uh, as your customers come from different, you know, as you get different types of customers they are coming from different places. And, and I think uh, that's,
0: that's something we're evaluating now for the next year or two, because, um, you know, it does require more and more sales coming in to continue to fuel the growth, right? It's probably beyond what the partners can sell themselves without some help, whether it's, uh, you know, an outbound program, whether it's um, a larger marketing campaign, or whether it's dedicated business development people. um, That's a decision that we're we're kind of wrestling with now. Um, We've seen all of those things be successful. What's right for us in the next, you know, 24 months?
1: yeah and the partners can still you know take the sales calls Wait. and do the meetings, but uh basically have somebody else kind of doing the legwork of getting those meetings lined up uh and that's
0: where that's where I think we're probably leaning uh just because we need so many prospects to generate the the revenue we're we're targeting for the next year,
1: yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's hard though to break into higher ed with outbound uh it has to be a little. T- you know i mean we do cold email and we do linkedin uh which works pretty well uh for our niche but we're going after you know a lot of call it like series a to uh later stage SaaS companies hmm. that's kind of like the niche we've been working in a lot uh that you know a lot of e-commerce businesses so typically they're you know 20 million to low hundreds of millions in revenue uh We do have some larger uh clients like we just landed a um i think they're like a four billion dollar uh actually landed two large enterprises one's a three billion dollar uh tier one isp and then the other one is a four or five billion dollar international consulting firm uh both of those were inbound though so they just found us through google search or uh you know like our partner profiles and uh, those were inbounds but getting into those companies outbound is really hard because they have super strict like firewall rules on email and uh, you know getting to the right person with the right message like if you're going after a SaaS company and you know specifically what their pain point is and you know how you can solve their pain point and they're a 200 person you know 50 million ARR SaaS company it's like all right well I'll reach out to the CTO or the CEO or the you know, I'll reach out to like the director of engineering or something. You know, there's only four or five people probably that make sense to reach out to, and you can pretty well target what you need to say to them. But if you're trying to reach out to like a massive, you know, twenty billion dollar corporate enterprise or you know a massive, uh, you know, uh, higher ed university, uh, you know, how do you even figure out who? You know, like going to say say Salesforce or Tableau, like who's in charge of that? How do you figure that out and then reach out? How do you get to that person and get in their
0: inbox? Right. And that's why um, we're still debating what the right answer is. And I think what we're probably going to do is, you know, run a trial and see what what kind of impact we can make with one of those solutions and, and see where we get because we are trying to. Meet you know the Fortune 500 and the and the large universities. We have a lot of mid-sized clients, a lot of midsize um, colleges and universities. But um, you know the the bigger needs is where we do um, do our best work.
1: I tried to just uh, from my experience, I tried to outsource uh, outbounding twice, uh, spent six figures on it, two different firms, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't win a single deal. And uh, it wasn't until I built it myself in house that it actually started working. Uh, I don't think it. You know, it's hard for other firms to understand what makes like what makes EigenX special. Like, what makes you guys right. a great fit? Uh, it's hard to outsource. Like, that's like a CEO strategy. Like, that comes out of your head and your your partner's heads, and that's like the go to market strategy for EigenX. And it's hard to bottle that and
0: pass it off to somebody else to be responsible for. That's what so you, I found you, trying to do it. So you you built your own outbound. Um, mostly email and LinkedIn, reach mostly out. Mostly
1: email and LinkedIn, yeah. We've done some crazy stuff uh, for larger opportunities. Like if there's a big whale client we're trying to land, uh, we're doing this with uh, WWE right now. We're trying to win business with them. But uh, if there's like a big whale client we're trying to land, we might like FedEx an iPhone with their number on the, on the home screen or something. Or uh, like we sent bonsai trees and just weird stuff like that, uh, you know, with like a note inside them uh so like if you're really trying to get on someone's radar there's like kind of you know interesting uh you know what do you call that like uh just kind of like a weird tactic that gets people's attention like an attention grabber uh but for uh you know it's like how big is your tam you have to look at like how big is your tam if you have a pretty large tam and there's you know in the high hundreds or low thousands or even tens of thousands of prospects out there, then, you know, it probably makes sense to do more of like a email LinkedIn approach. But Mm -hmm. if your TAM's like 200 people or like 50 people, you know, if you're selling like foil to, uh, you know, for like coding the outside of space shuttles or something, you're not going to cold email the three companies that buy that stuff. (laughs) Right. Right you'll probably try to figure out how to get in front of them in person. So that, that's what, uh, that, that's what I've learned uh, doing it.
0: I appreciate the input. we're trying to um, trying to make that decision to start in January, um, you know, with, with our new marketing thoughts.
1: Yeah. You, you got, you guys will get it. I'm sure it's,
0: uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to be some trial and errors. You said, right. We just, uh, <laughs> we've got to get focused on it. We know it's going to be time consuming for us to get it set up no matter how we do it. Um, we just have to dial it up and, and commit the time. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
1: Well, we can wrap up here. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we hop off? Uh, <laughs> obviously I but anything else you want to plug? Uh,
0: no, the thing I would say is, um, you know, we're always in the market for technology talent. And so we're, we're out there, um, meeting universities. Um, uh, uh, we run a lot of the user groups, uh, in, in this area for, Salesforce and Tableau, where we're bringing in speakers and um, and making sure that the user community here is pretty tied together. So uh, those have been great things for us to invest in and and make sure that um, that our folks are out there, you know, being seen as the the experts in the space, which they are. Um, but just to be a resource that um, that the clients know they can call upon.
1: Cool. Well, this was fun. G-
0: great episode, Stan. Always good to see you. And thanks, Brian. Uh, anytime for coming on. All right, man. Have a good morning. See ya.